Hey everyone, I'm Jimmy Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In the 18th century, the Miamia people inhabited what are now parts of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. More commonly known in English as the Miami, the Miamia figure prominently in the early history of the United States, especially in the 1790s, when War Chief Michikanakwa, or Little Turtle, co-led an alliance of Miami and Shawnee warriors that defeated successive American armies in the Ohio Valley before meeting defeat at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794. In the battle's wake, through treaty and subterfuge, Americans dispossessed the Miami of their lands, removing them first to Kansas in the mid-19th century before final resettlement in Oklahoma not long after. Not only did the Miami lose their homelands, their language and culture suffered as well, lapsing into silence as the community fractured and native speakers passed away. But as George Ironstrack tells us on today's episode, all is not lost, and through the power of education and a lot of hard work, what was once silenced is now heard again in Miami communities from the banks of the Wabash River in Indiana to the northeastern corner of Oklahoma. Ironstrack is a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma and the assistant director of the Miamia Center at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. The center is a major educational and research institution dedicated to revitalizing Miamia language and culture, and it's a leader in using digital technology to explore the indigenous past. George and I spoke earlier in the summer of 2020, soon after the COVID shutdowns began, to talk about the history of the Miamia people and the work that he and his colleagues are doing at the center to awaken a sleeping language. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode for links to many of the digital resources we discuss over the course of our conversation. Before we get started, a warm welcome to all of our new listeners. We're happy you've joined us for season five, and it's wonderful to hear from so many of our longtime fans. We appreciate your support, and we hope you'll tell your friends about us. And with that, let's revitalize Miami language and culture with George Ironstrack. What kind of recording actually are you, have you been doing? You said you, you've been using this mm-hmm. to do you know, recording for your colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been, um, this is really sort of another uh, major downer with COVID mm-hmm. is that uh, we began over a year and a half ago, uh, really 25 years ago, working on an exhibit um, for highlighting uh, an art form in our community called ribbon work. Mm-hmm. And um, we were scheduled, we opened an exhibit in January um, uh, called Peponga Shaw Pikakia Ekwata Menge Miami Ribbon Work. And it brought in beautiful pieces of ribbon work from all over, really all over North America. Um, the, the highlight of the uh, exhibition was a set of leggings and moccasins that come from the family of Michiganaqua of Little Turtle, although mm-hmm. they actually claim to be Little Turtle's um, leggings. And uh, so this ex- exhibition was assembled and then um, a few of our community members got to see it and then COVID shut everything down. Mm-hmm. And um, it was right before our major conference when a lot of our community comes to Oxford and it was going to be a big highlight show. And so then we created a uh, curator walkthrough of the exhibition on video mm-hmm. and we were recording voice- voiceovers for that. Well, George, uh, you just mentioned both Little Turtle and Ribbon Work. And so one of the, the two of the things we wanted to talk about today uh, is one early American history and, and specifically looking at the Miami people's relationship with white Americans like George Washington in the early Republic. But also, much more importantly, we wanted to talk about the Miami Project and the, the process of revitalizing Miami language and culture. And we'll, you know, we'll kind of get to that in the, the second half of today's show, but I thought, you know, maybe we, we should start with some historical context and with some foundations to help ground our audience in the work that you are doing there at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and talk a little bit about Little Turtle and his relationship with George Washington in the 1790s, and uh, or equally as important, uh, the history of the Miami people in the 18th century and the circumstances that required 
a language and cultural revitalization in the 20th and 21st century. So can you actually, can you give us a sense first of, of who Little Turtle was and why he figures so prominently in the history of the Miami people, but also in the history of the early United States? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Mishikanakwa, as he's, as he's named in our language, or he's called uh, Little Turtle in English, uh, was a Miami uh, leader, first a war leader, and then eventually a civil or peace leader um, that rose to prominence uh, beginning in the, the decade and a half of warfare that preceded his visit to Philadelphia to meet George Washington in 1796. Um, so he first rose to position where his community sought him out for leadership through warfare and then became a peace leader with the first Treaty of Greenville in 1795. He's today sort of widely known and acclaimed, but for the first part of his adulthood, we actually don't know a lot about him. Mm-hmm. So the major biography of him tries to ascertain exactly when he was born and where he was born. And really that remains unclear today in the historical record. Um, but probably born sometime between uh, 1747 and 1752 in and around what is today, um, or to the to the west of what is today Fort Wayne or Kikayonge, a place that eventually became called Turtletown, and first really rises to prominence when he shows up as a major leader, uh, destroying a, a kind of amalgamated force of Frenchmen and Americans led by a, a man named Le Balm in 1780. And then he becomes increasingly important uh, uh, to Miami community as we face successive invasions of our homelands in the 1790s, um, led by you know, different, different generals, Hamar, St. Clair, and eventually um, Anthony Wayne, and is one of the leaders credited with the major defeat of the U.S. Army at the Battle of the Wabash, also known as St. Clair's defeat in 1791. But I, I think, you know, Again, here I lean on on the major biography of of um, Michigan by Carter, named the it's called the Life and Times of Little Turtle, where really it's it's the turn towards peace where he becomes um, really well known, um, in part because he's a very skilled promoter of himself. Mm-hmm. And Carter argues that you can't really understand Michigan without also understanding his son-in-law, Apicaneta. Uh, uh, a man named, also named William Wells, who was a captive, captured around the age of 13 and adopted into the Kanepikomekwa, the Eel River community, um, and eventually um, marries um, Mishikanakwa's daughter. And it's really sort of, he says, you have to understand both of them as together. It's mm-hmm. hard to separate the two of them. And together, they both successfully promote themselves as representing the Miami nation as a, like a singular entity, which is uh, as, a, as a thing, it didn't really exist yet, but they had a hand in a way in creating that thing by, pre- by purporting to represent it and in burnishing uh, Mishikanakwa's Little Turtle's um, reputation as, as mm-hmm. the, the key leader, especially of uh, St. Clair's defeat. When, you know, the record makes pretty clear there are multiple central war leaders and they probably all worked together, Blue Jacket, Bucking Gahalas, these other leaders from other communities, and that there wasn't sort of a singular Napoleonic figure um, leading that battle, which, which is what a lot, one of, a lot of Americans wanted to identify. They wanted to identify the defeat as sort of the work of a singular genius rather than, you know, possibly the collaborative effort of multiple indigenous nations. So th- through that vehicle of sort of this military reputation, he then rises to a prominent position as a civil leader, beginning at the Treaty of Greenville in 1795 that establishes our, our first peace with the United States. 
And I think he pretty successfully refutes the previous treaties that were fraudulent, like Fort Stanwick's mm. Treaty of Fort Hamar, Treaty of uh, Fort McIntosh, and then sort of clears the ground to create a new a new relationship of peace between the United States and the Miami as well as other tribes, and then continues to participate in treaty negotiations all the way until um, about, about 1809, um, when he's, I think, it's pretty fair to say, pulled down from a representative role in the community. Mm-hmm. So his status as a leader within the Miami community was always fraught and questioned. And especially some of the the decisions he helped negotiate at treaties that came later, like the Treaty of 1809 and Fort Wayne, um, his own community deeply disputed the legitimacy of those treaties. And basically after 1809, he was never sought out to represent the community again. Um, so his status um, was not continually even in terms of the regard with which he was held. And really up until his death, the beginning of the War of 1812, he, he did not represent his community in a in a a significant manner mm-hmm. and was not, I think it's fair to say, held in very high regard by his broader Miami community at the time of his death. Now, of course, his his immediate family still held him in high regard, but his reputation in the community declined. And it kind of remained that way until really the late 1800s. And there's this sort of resurrection of Little Turtle as this historic champion figure. And certainly mm-hmm. as a young person, I only learned sort of the champion side of Little Turtle's reputation. And you know, only later in life, researching, reading, did do you see more what you'd expect, which is a leader who, like any leader, has a lot of ups and downs in his career and always fails to perfectly represent the will of the entire community because all mm-hmm. communities are diverse and have many constituencies within them. That's a great overview. And actually, I want to unpack a lot there because it seems like his lifespan it does mark a series of transition points, uh, both for the Miami people, for for British Americans, later the United States, and the relationship, you know, the complicated and entangled relationship between you know all the various peoples living in these spaces. And, and you know, I think you're right. You know, if, a lot of people, if they've even heard of Little Turtle, they'll know him best for Saint Clair's defeat. You know, for the Treaty of Greenville. If I recall correctly, that Saint Clair's defeat still remains to this day the worst defeat per capita of the United States Army in the, in the United States history. Uh, there's a lot going on there. And actually, I want to talk more about uh, the Miami homelands and the Miami community and the nature of that community, because I think that's important for folks at home who are listening to this show to, to help them understand you know, the kind of work you're doing now in the 20th, 21st century uh, to rebuild Miami language and culture. So can you give us a sense of the scope and scale of Miami homelands as they would have existed in you know, the mid-18th century uh, up, up and through the 1790s? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, just reframing St. Clair's defeat as the Battle of the Wabash um, emphasizes, rather, the, rather than the failure of General St. Clair, it emphasizes the location where the battle occurred. Mm-hmm. And one reason why to do that is that the Wapashike Sipi, where the Wabash River, is the core of our homelands. So um, to, to have a battle there sort of near the headwaters of the Wapashike Sipi is also sort of symbolic of a defense of the place that was central to our lives across time. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have a large village there. The villages we were defending were to the north of there, but still that waterway is is deeply important to us as a people to this day. Um, so in that time period, Little Turtle himself at the Treaty of Greenville defined our homelands the way he saw them. And today we define them a little bit differently than he did in uh, 1795. But um, at that treaty, he defined the 
the eastern border of our homelands as the the Seota River and basically following that line north to the Auglaise and then following the Auglaise north to the Lake Erie. So that was the eastern boundary of our homelands, which basically mm-hmm. cuts through the center of what is today Ohio. Then the southern boundary of our homelands was the Kanzenze um, Piwe, the Ohio River. And then, of course, from our perspective, uh, ethnocentric Miami perspective, the Ohio joins the Wabash. Um, and so then you follow the Wabash to the to the west and all the way to the to the Mississippi. And so then we say that the Mississippi forms the the western border of our homelands. Um, so that takes in um, half of Ohio, all of Indiana, and all of Illinois. And then the northern boundary is a little a little harder to define, but it takes in a good part of um, southern Wisconsin, what is today southern Wisconsin, and a small slice of what is today southern Michigan. Um, also in, is included typically in how we define our homelands. But the core, as I already mentioned, the center, mm-hmm. the heartland of our of our people was the Wapashikisipi with the Wabash River, which sits roughly at the center of that. And that's where you would have found our large semi-permanent or permanent um, agricultural villages in this time period where people would spend most of their lives during the summertime. And there'd, there'd be people there year round, but the population would be densest during the summertime. And then various family groups, kin groups would head out to uh, winter hunting camps, as well as other seasonal gathering camps in the spring and fall, um, and kind of move like satellite communities back and forth between the large villages in the heartland and the satellite communities in the in the periphery. Um, so that's that's kind of the geography of home, of our homeland at this period of time. It's a shared space, so. Within Michiganakwa's time, there's, of course, a lot of tribal peoples as very, very close neighbors, indigenous nations who had moved very closely um, to share the same space with us, the Shawnee, the Delaware, especially in what is today the Fort Wayne area, um, but, but multiple other groups, uh, the Wyandotte, our cousins, the Peoria, Gaskaskia to the west, uh, Kickapoo, uh, Sauk, Meskwaki, um, Ho-Chunk, um, so a wide variety of other indigenous nations who have their own heartlands, their own central village sites. So all these territories overlap, right? They're not nation states. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm defining really is a, is a place of cultural action, one that was understood to have a certain kind of ownership based on use and mm-hmm. tradition, but not a immutable legal title passed down through any kind of uh, abstract documents. It was understood at a communal historical level. Well, that's an important point to make, right? Because if you look at any, well, not any 18th century map, because some are better than others, or at least maps produced by English speakers or produced in Europe, you know, some are better than others about labeling the relative positions of peoples in this space, in this period. But a lot of those maps, you would get the impression that it's just vacant space and that there's no one living there. Presumably uh, because they wanted to make it seem as if the, that land was there for the taking and that, that there was no clear legal title uh, at least in terms of how Euro-Americans defined it, and that that gave them the license or the right to, you know, squat, to negotiate fraudulent treaties, to do all these different kinds of things uh, to an, an attempt to dispossess Native peoples of their property. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that the idea of terra nullis is sort of a space that's unoccupied or void of legitimate human habitation is one that, you know, informs a lot of colonization globally. Um, in, in this period, in the period before that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It springs from that desire, which you already described, to excuse or explain away why it was legitimate to take this land. And it also comes from sort of a lack of knowledge. So many of the map makers had never visited these spots, were 
asking questions sometimes of people who had, um, but it's always a, a relatively imperfect, imperfect representation. You know, Mishikanakwa, Little Turtle, at the Treaty of Greenville in 1795, he's the only leader that I know of at that treaty who stands up and defines his people's territory in a way that any any community anywhere could understand how he was describing it. Mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, no one uh, no one mapped that out. No one bothered, despite having this expert there. No one drew those boundaries on a map and said, oh, here's what Miami, Little Turtle of the Miami says is their territory. So I wonder how many other times across, you know, these various kinds of intercultural moments, leaders, community members did actually define their territory mm-hmm. in a way a map member could have mapped it, and they just didn't. Chose not to. Um, well, that's a fascinating point. And, and, you know, I think we'll get this later, but maybe we'll just jump ahead for a second. But the Miami Project, which will, and now the Center, which we'll talk about, one of the initial projects, right, was developing uh, a digital map of those homelands as described in that period. Yeah. So one of the, one of the major tasks that Daryl Baldwin, the director of the Miami Center, had when he came was to figure out ways to represent what we were learning about language in a way that helped us understand aspects of our lives uh, in the past and mm-hmm. a- and aspects uh, that we could bring into the present and revitalize of our com- in, our, in our community. And one of those, one of those um, lessons that we learned is how to talk about home and homelands. Mm-hmm. And so creating a map that represented, you know, we had lists and lists and lists of river names, but organizing those river names by by putting what we know and what we understand about the names of those rivers onto a mapping space really allows us then as a community to visualize our homelands differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, mapping is a really important exercise in terms of understanding who you are as a people. And um, so it's a, it's a beautiful exercise that involved, you know, Daryl as a, as a linguist and a community language teacher, the linguists that we work with, like Dr. David Costa, and then the relationships with people in anthropology and, um, in GIS and geography mm-hmm. to produce a map that, you know, can have different kinds of generations, um, different kinds of depictions of the same, same kind of data, um, but also create sort of the favorite one that we use is very artistic. It's beautiful. We still use it in presentations today, even though it's well over a decade old. Mm-hmm. And taking that river, which basically took every single river term we had and mapped it. And then we allowed the river terminology to, to define where our people lived and where they traveled and where they went. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a map that really mapped, um, mapped cultural identity, and cultural mm-hmm. use of a space rather than a, a nation state. So it's much bigger than, than the map that Little Turtle defined in 1795. But it, it's really illuminating to show, you know, these are the places people traveled regularly enough or lived in to give them names and um, rivers of course are the major thoroughfares that people used either traveling by watercraft or like for my people actually much more commonly traveling the trails that paralleled the rivers and actually i want to push this a little bit more because i really am taken by this idea of shared cultural space or shared cultural identity and so one of the things I was hoping you would talk about is the, the actual structure of, of you know, Miami as society itself you you said when we were talking about uh, you know the the conflicts on the Wabash River, that it wasn't simply the great Napoleonic figure in the form of a little turtle who defeats the Americans. It's actually a, a, the work of a community. What does that society look like? Yeah, so Miami society is, um, for those who, who study this period of time, it's pretty common across Great Lakes indigenous nations, is a village-centered life for most of little turtles mm-hmm. of Michiganakwa's life and for 
as far as we can tell, his parents' and grandparents' generations, so that society, culture, and politics spun off of the village. So it's not to say that those villages couldn't come together to um, organize themselves for mutual defense or negotiation or trade, but that daily life, even maybe you could say year-to-year life, was really structured on the minutene, on the village community. And so life in the village was centered off of and spun off of the orbit of women. Mm -hmm. Um, So the female leaders were the heads of households and um, construction and ownership of the home and control and care of the children was um, fell under the realm and responsibility of women in the community. And then women were also responsible for farming. So all these communities were agricultural communities producing vast fields of, of mijipe, of corn, as well as growing other um, agricultural produce like squash and beans. Um, although Miami people did not employ three sisters agriculture in the sense that others did. Mm. And then a multiple other plants that were either loosely grown um, in terms of managed populations of wild plants or directly harvesting in, in spaces like, like wetlands, uh, wetland tuber harvesting, which was a major part of the diet too during particular times of the year, maple sugaring, harvesting from maple sugar groves, uh, har- harvesting sap in, from maple sugar trees in, in the springtime. Um, so all of those activities were really under the, the control of women. They, they dictated the work, they organized the work, they controlled the product of that work. And then they also were responsible for processing the hides and, and meat that men would bring back when they traveled outside the village to hunt. And again, the, the products of that labor were under the control of women. So that center space then was governed, the village space was governed. Um, most villages had both a male and female council. And those councils made up of heads of families made the major, when the village needed decision-making bodies, which wasn't a daily thing, mm-hmm. they would make the decisions necessary about what the village was going to do. Um, and there were usually uh, a single woman, Akimakwia, a female leader noted as the lead female civil leader, and a, a single man, Akima, noted as the lead civil figure. And both of these civil chiefs were viewed as servant leaders so that they had no coercive power when or if they were gained any kind of wealth or capital, that wealth or capital actually belonged to the entire nation and could be basically taken from them at any time. So they were they were representatives in the ideal sense, um, didn't always work out the way in practice, but um, they were they were to be representatives of the community when called on. But day-to-day life didn't require the actions of any sing- single leader politically inside the village. Outside the village was really viewed as the the space or the domain of men. So you have this 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 relationship between men and women where they're not equal in the strictest sense of the word as we view it today, but there's an equitable balance of influence within the community. And so, you know, the influence of women was higher inside the village and the influence of men was higher outside the village. Men were responsible for, as I already said, hunting. Um, And they were also responsible for trade, originally ritual exchange, and eventually um, in the fur trade era, more economic forms of trade with with outside groups, including Europeans. And men were responsible for, for carrying out warfare. Um, the decision to go uh, uh, to make war um, almost always involved women in the community, but the actual action of carrying out warfare usually felt the responsibility of men. There are cases where it's documented where women went to war and fought, but it was the exception, not the rule. Mm-hmm. And so those, uh, just 
you know, that's kind of a basic overview of the, the society um, around, you know, that Little Turtle would have lived through for most of his life. Mm-hmm. And of course, it changes very, very rapidly um, following the, the Treaty of Greenville, mm-hmm. um, which we can, we can talk about in a little bit more about the impacts of mm-hmm. colonization and settlement on Miami society after the 1790s. Let's, let's begin to pick up that thread because we started our conversation in 1796 when Little Turtle goes to Philadelphia to meet Washington. And, and in a subsequent journey, he also meets a man, Volney, who is a, is it fair to describe him as a kind of semi-modern ethnographer? Yeah, Volney is kind of a weird character. And I don't, I don't know him really well, except for reading, um, reading the primary sources of his interaction, his own recordings of his interactions with Michikanaqua and a little bit at how biographers of Michikanaqua describe him. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe other, other listeners of the, the podcast can, can add more, but he strikes me as this kind of typical enlightenment journeyman who wants to travel the Atlantic world and learn a little bit of everything. So mm-hmm. his, his larger volume is focused a lot on what, what you might call geology, um, climate and soil and living conditions. And then people are seen as, at least as I read it, like manifestations of those conditions mm-hmm. uh, um, and the places where they, where they grew up. And a part of what he wants to identify is where did these indigenous nations come from? Or of course, he's calling us savages, right? So where right. did these savages come from? And I think that's a part of a broader effort. I think Thomas Jefferson was interested in much the same thing, that then mm-hmm. language, language could allow you to identify if you could figure out how these languages were grouped by families and you could demonstrate they all descended from, you know, one or, or two or three very small groups, and then you could show where those groups came from. Then you could show how did these indigenous people come to what is today called North America, or was then uh, began to be called North America, to our right how we came to live in our own homelands. Mm-hmm. Very rarely did they ask us that question. They didn't ask Michikanaqua, how did your people come to be here? Instead, Volney actually put a map down on the table and said, then started to lecture uh, Michikanaqua on the Bering Strait theory. It's it's a really interesting moment. A lot of a lot of other scholars have noticed have noted it. Um, it's very striking. He said that Little Turtle very clearly could identify, you know, from a Euro Euro American mapping perspective, the Great Lakes. He could understand the positionality of his homelands on the Great Lakes, and then he was very interested in the other geography of, of North America. And when Volney got to explaining that, you know, the, the as Volney called them, the Tatars could cross the the Bering Strait, and there the they're the ancestors of, of Little Turtle's people. Um, Little Turtle kind of, I, I, he didn't say this, but I imagine him stroking his chin and thinking for a minute and then saying, but, but how, how do you know that it's not the other way around, that our ancestors didn't cross the Bering Strait and populate Asia? Oh, yeah. and, and at that time, they did not have data to dispute Little Turtle's claim. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Volney's response was something along the lines of, uh, well, that's possible, but our black robes, meaning the religious folk, wouldn't really accept such an explanation. <laughs> um, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's this grand enterprise of understanding that humanity, right, that, that Volney's after and trying to explain the origins of various groups. And that leads him to record a, you know, a modestly, a, a modest word list from Michikanaqua, working through Epikaneta, working through William Wells. Little Turtle probably spoke other languages, but he didn't speak English. And so Volney communicated in English through Epikaneta um, with uh, Michikanaqua, with Little Turtle. And so, you know, we say that this is all Little Turtle's thinking, but we have to acknowledge that through the act of translation, some of of Epikaneta, of William Wells is in there too. Although I think Volney tries to be careful and say, where is this just Wells giving his opinion and where does he believe this to be like a 
strict translation of what Mishukanakwa was telling him. Um, it's imperfect, but he tries to tries to do that. In that moment, there is some recording of the language. But as you said a few moments ago, after the Treaty of Greenville, there is a dramatic transformation of Miami society. And can you can you give us a brief overview of what happens in the intervening years, especially in the 19th century, before we start to talk about the Miamia project in earnest and in, in talking about revitalization efforts? Yeah, and it and again, Volney is a nice hinge point to spin off of there because. Um, he really gets into some interesting economic conversations with Mishikanakwa. He asks him, like, could you see yourself living in Philadelphia? Um, he asks him, like, what do you think about the clothes you're wearing? Because, you know, Mishikanakwa is wearing moccasins, but everything else about his clothing is actually American. He's wearing pants and a jacket and a, a round, a blue round hat, they describe. And um, so this sort of leads them down some very interesting roads to talk about the change already. This is just a year after the Treaty of Greenville, there's already some pretty massive changes afoot. Um, Little Turtle has just been vaccinated against smallpox, um, I believe by Rush. And um, he's already beginning to become aware of the vast population size of this new American, the the new United States. Mm -hmm. And he's really struck by um, the diversity of people in Philadelphia and the diversity of occupation and the economy there. And he recognizes he's that in that space, he has nothing to contribute economically. He says something along the lines of, I can make bows and arrows, but I can't make shoes. I don't know how to do these other things. So what would I contribute to this place? How would I feed myself? Yeah. Back home, I can. Back home, those skills are of value, but here they're not. Volney then asks him, well, why do you think it is that the population here is so much bigger and yet your population, I think Little Shirl actually says, he acknowledges population growth. He says, your population has grown very, very rapidly over a short period of time here, while our population has stayed, I think he says, as thin as deer. So we've stayed mm. kind of stable. Um, and Volney asks him, why, why do you think that's the case? And he says, well, it's, he says, it's because your economic system allows, um, he basically describes yeoman farming, uh, allows a farming family to build in a very constrained geography, an economic unit that will feed that family and give them surplus for trade over the following year. Mm-hmm. And he, he acknowledges sort of the use of animals in that process. He understands all these things, right? It's not, not, um, it's not foreign to him, um, but that the way my people live, we need to use a vast amount of geography. So we have our farming, but then we also have our hunting, which sustains us, which requires a lot more acreage. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we're able to not reproduce as many people in the same period of time or using the same amount of resources as you are. And he then goes on to say, he's sort of playing off of the notion of the vanishing Indian. He says, um, that's why you, know, you are spreading like oil across the map and we are melting away like snow before the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, what he's describing there is this intense pressure that's already building in our communities um, and a pressure to um, to find a new p- path forward, at least from his perspective. Keep in mind, everyone within it, in his community didn't agree with him. Sure. And that, that there was going to be a lot of population stress in the years to come. So that decade and a half of warfare really decimated our communities. Our villages were burned multiple times, and um, the U.S. Army, when they would burn villages, would intentionally burn the stored grain. So, you know, we were very skilled farmers, and Mm -hmm. we stored our grain in various ways, um, and it was usually destroyed when those villages were attacked. So these communities were impoverished on multiple occasions, starving, relying on on their relatives and other tribal nations for support. And, you know, coming out of the Treaty of Greenville, you know, the recovery wasn't instantaneous. 
the treaty also, for us, from our perspective, ceded, um, we, we relinquished the United States, what is today um, Southwestern Ohio, where my university sits today. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, primarily our, one of our major hunting ground areas. So we lost a major economic resource. And um, so there is, there's pressure to begin to try and figure out a, a new way to live, right? And so Mishikanakwa, Little Turtle, helps working together with, um, with the Friends, with Quakers, as well as with some obvious pressure from the United States government to engage in what people call civilization uh, efforts, um, to convert from female-oriented agriculture and men doing hunting to uh, male-centered uh, yeoman agriculture and the women working on, you know, household-centered trades. And Michiganaqua and Wells, it's it's a weird dichotomy. They alternated between supporting these things and then undercutting the people that were sent to help train the Miami. And it rec- I think it represents the, the degree to which people had a really uh, ambiguous feeling about these changes, you know, and probably the the resentment that existed inside the community you know who are these people to come teach us how to farm our women are actually pretty good farmers and the men who at that point could still hunt pretty successfully it was beginning to change but they could still hunt pretty successfully didn't necessarily see the need for economic change but that increased uh, as land treaties increased so you know under especially under uh thomas jefferson and uh, with the work of william henry harrison you see a more land treaties occur and Mm -hmm. increasing the Miami land base, it diminishes. At the same time that settlement nearby our homelands increases and hunting becomes less viable as the animal populations become overstressed, population continues to collapse through various kinds of diseases and other kinds of ill health in the community. And so you see just a general rise in um, social tension in Miami communities from 1795 really through, really all the way through until removal in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. But you have, you have major peaks at the War of 1812 lead to outbreaks of violence again against the United States. And then you have sort of declines in violence, but in the 1820s and 1830s, really intense internal community, community disintegration precedes forced removal in 1846. And that's because basically in 50 years, our entire homelands are ceded. Mm-hmm. We're left with ba- barely over 500,000 acres prior to, to forced removal that's collectively held. And that's not enough land to feed the community. So and the, the process of, you know, set, you know, unleashed by William Henry Harrison of indebting tribal leaders and tribal families to force them to the treaty table to then get them to cede more land and then indebt them again, just produce this horrific cycle mm-hmm. of trade debt, treaties, payments, you know, then more debt, and it just set the community into a really terrible economic spiral that was manipulated by all of the people around the nation, the fur traders, the government agents, the elected leaders of the United States. This whole process was um, manipulated to basically strip Miami people of our land. The goal being, right, in the end, to either assimilate us into American society so we disappear as a distinct indigenous nation, or to force us to move west and be a distinct indigenous nation sort of away from the body politic of the United States. And it's a, it's a, a dual effort on that part, right? Because there is that, that push to assimilate. But then, as you say, in 1846, there ultimately is removal to Oklahoma, if I remember correctly. Uh, to, to what is today Kansas first, and oh, then, Kansas then first. Oklahoma. There's two removals, yeah. That story really continues. I mean, you know, the, the relocation or the resettlement or forced removal you know, takes place in that period. But then there's the, you know, the continued assault uh, on indigenous ways of living and thinking 
throughout the 19th century into the 20th. And one of the things I, I was curious about by way of setting up this next segment is wondering when or how long native speakers persisted uh, and when, when was the kind of moment where, uh, unfortunately, the, the Miami language began uh, to die out that eventually necessitated uh, important work like you're doing now? Yeah, so this, this community fragmentation that I described um, that you know, reached, reached a, well, it didn't re- yet reach a nadir, but it began to head towards a nadir in the 1820s and 1830s mm-hmm. um, directly connects to the, the question you're asking about the silencing of the Miami language, the dormancy of our, of our, of our heritage language. And the, the forced removal in 1846 accelerated this fragmentation. So uh, over 320 people were relocated in the fall of 1846. Around 150, best we can tell, were, al- were, were allowed to stay in what is today Indiana um, through treaties and legislation. Um, so you then have a, a rather small population broken into two parts. And they continued to move between the two parts. The, mm-hmm. the, the group that was removed, as I said, they were removed to what is today Kansas, um, the Lazine River Valley in eastern Kansas, south of Kansas City on the Missouri border. That's where we received a reservation. We're the last tribe to arrive out there and we received a reservation. It was supposed to be 500,000 acres and ended up being 325. And um, that population then immediately started to go into a tailspin uh, because of disease. Mm-hmm. They arrived during the edge of winter. They had to have new homes constructed. Um, they then relocated their village once after that and had to rebuild again. And in 1854, um, we signed a treaty agreeing to diminish that reservation and to engage. This is actually before the Allotment Act, but we agreed to allot the reservation into individual parcels held by heads of family that would be protected for a period of time before they could become sort of fee simple lands. And so you then have the land, sh- the land base diminished again and then divided, fragmented again. And then, of course, the Civil War hits. Um, it's a great time to be in Kansas, right? Bleeding Kansas breaks out. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and literally, like, you know, John Brown, that's happening on Indian land. All of that is yeah. happening on Indian land. You know, Miami people end up, some of our uh, community become sort of refugees in our own land as these, the Civil War breaks out early and even our own homes are attacked, caught in the crossfire of this this um, war between, um, you know, amongst the people who brought us there. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the Civil War, um, Kansas is a state. And again, the same language and same processes repeat themselves. And we're basically coerced into signing an omnibus treaty together with a bunch of other tribes in 1867 to remove to Indian territory. So the idea was if you're going to, Indian nations belong in Indian territory, what is today Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and don't belong in Kansas because it's a state. Um, but if some of your people want to stay in Kansas, cause you know, many of them had just rebuilt homes there, what they have to do is they have to basically forswear their citizenship in the tribal nation and, and agree to become citizens of the U S. And, um, if not, if they want to, if you want to stay a citizen of your tribal nation, you have to go to Oklahoma or Indian territory. So a few, we think as many as 30 people make that very difficult decision and remain in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the nation, which is very small by that time, over 100 people relocates to the northeast corner of Indian Territory. And again, we're the last to arrive. We end up sharing a reservation with our cousins, the Peoria, um, a very, very small reservation in comparison to what we had in Kansas originally. And so now you have the population, a very small population fragmented into three groups. And so maintaining a minority language and culture when you're extremely small and also fragmented into three geographical locations, it was very difficult at that time in American history 
you add to that the force of the boarding school system. So you have these attempts to assimilate people by dividing their land and forcing them to, to abandon communal style living for nuclear family style living. And then you also take the children out of those families and you take them to residential boarding schools where they're not allowed to speak their traditional language and encouraged to not teach that language to their future children. Um, you create a really powerful means by which to assimilate children, right? The goal is to, mm. to destroy native nations through their children by assimilating them into the broader American public and convincing them to adopt, you know, a lifestyle that is you move wherever the work is. Family is sort of secondary mm -hmm. to economic contribution. And so all those forces together really by the, the turn of the 20th century put the uh, Miao Miao language, what we call Miao Miao Tawenge, puts our language on a trajectory towards silence. So if, if children under five are not learning it, then no matter how big your population, if children under five aren't learning it, the language is not going to exist as soon as sort of death takes its natural course in a population. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, by the 1930s, the number of opportunities to be in like a group, a room with a large number of people and speak the language had really declined. So speaking people who um, either had good strong memory of the language or could speak it fairly well those folks you know you imagine they were grazed by their grandparents and other kinds of opportunities to learn the language as children um, we see those folks beginning to pass away in the 1960s i see and we think that there may have been one partial speaker of the language now who lived into the 1980s but he was never interviewed um, we don't know the extent of his knowledge. Um, but so even though we can say that, that maybe some speakers lived into the 1960s or 1980s, um, you know, that wasn't like big group mm -hmm. interaction. Um, the language had become quite uh, moribund by that point. It had become fixed and wasn't yeah. evolving. So new words are not being created. Um, so really the last time the language was vibrant, you could say, um, or anything close to vibrant would have been, you know, that transition point into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me growing up as a, as a young person, you know, I unfortunately learned that our language was extinct. That was the word that was used. Um, and well, I only heard, sorry, go ahead. Well, so actually I was going to ask you that because I heard you use the word silence and I was really fascinated by the choice of word there because I mean, we're about the same age. So when we were kids, you, you heard about extinct languages and, and certainly on your end, you heard it about your own uh, indigenous language. And, but I'm, so I'm really fascinated by the distinction between silence and extinction, you know, what, what do you see as, uh, as the main differences there? Yeah, well, I think, let, let me just describe my personal experience first, then I'll come back to the, the differences between the two terms. Yeah, sure. I, th I think as, as a young person, you know, who, who grew up understanding really that my grandfather was Miamia and I didn't mm -hmm. really see myself as Miamia in terms of fragmentation of population. My family eventually lost our land in nearby what is today Fort Wayne and ended up in Chicago, which is a Miamia place too, historically, but mm -hmm. one I didn't, one I didn't see as Miamia as a kid and did not get to, did not have the benefit of spending time with my relatives in Oklahoma until I was a, an older teenager, or my relatives also in Indiana much until I was an older teenager. Mm -hmm. And so this word of extinction was really powerful, right? The idea was our language was gone and could not come back. And I heard it in a fragmentary fashion. So people had memorized some songs and prayers and some giving of traditional names, but no one knew what what they were saying anymore. Their translations were very figurative and they didn't literally understand the words anymore. And so it, it felt very final, right? It never mm -hmm. occurred to me, despite encountering the language when I'd read historical documents, it never occurred to me that it could be spoken. 
in terms of commu- in a communicative way, yeah. not just not just in a presentational way. And that that continued until someone else, um, the current director of the Miami Center, Daryl Baldwin. He's the first one to sort of introduce me to the idea that no, no, we can use our language to communicate with each other by using these documents to learn it. Well, then we can very very minimally at first actually have conversations with each other mm-hmm. that was an idea i couldn't come to myself because of the power of this word extinction right it really right like the dinosaurs they're dead and gone jurassic park is a myth right uh, despite being a wonderful movie they're not coming yeah. back it's very final and the power of beginning to take ownership of that and, and and to speak our language again first was done just through action we actually didn't talk about in english how are we going to describe that we just started learning to speak the language again as a community mm-hmm. we can come back to those steps in a second but really it's the person who has the greatest impact on me is my relative um dr wesley leonard who's who's written extensively about this about you know, Miamia as a formally sleeping language is how he describes it. And it's a really powerful to then actually begin to articulate what it means for us to speak our language and to describe it as being silenced, right? That there's, there's entities actively seeking to stop our language from being spoken. It's a mm-hmm. passive process. And then once that happened, our language was dormant or sleeping. And it's there for us because our language was recorded in such minute detail in documentation. It's there for us to, to wake up and speak again if we choose to. Um, and so the power for that today is, you know, when we need to talk about our language's history, uh, we don't have to touch on that really powerfully negative word that sort of shuts down what we're doing. Right. And we can just acknowledge the process a- as we see it today as it's empowering, right? It mm-hmm. emphasizes the resiliency of our people and it represents the resiliency of our language. So that to me is the really important distinction um, between those two words. That said, my kids today who have been speaking the language since they were born, they don't, I don't think they fully really understand that the language was even dormant for a time mm-hmm. because for them, it's really real and it's always been there and that's all that matters. So that the conversation about sleeping languages is really one we have more now with people like outside our community. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when we're working with our college students and we want them to understand the history, we then, we then, you know, talk about this, but more and more, we just speak our language and, um, don't focus so much on defining it in internally. Sure. Well, well, then let's talk about those steps of removing that silence, of waking it back up. Well, you know, what was the kind of work that the Miami people have had to do to remove that silence? It's kind of interesting to think about the generational shifts. You know, I think about the life that my grandfather had, which was very difficult, the poverty um, that it sort of enveloped my family after our, the status of our land was questioned and we lost our land in Indiana. Common theme across um, people in my grandfather's generation and before. And in my father's generation, um, the same generation as the director of the Miami Center, Daryl Baldwin, um, there's this moment where we can catch our breath again, Mm -hmm. where we're not simply struggling to survive. Uh, Because you cannot, I would argue, take these really important actions of sort of reflection if all you're doing is day-to-day trying to survive. And so in that generation, the baby boomer generation and those born just after it, they began to ask questions like, what happened to us? And people like Daryl Baldwin, Daryl began to ask, you know, what happened to our language as a part of what happened to us? And, you know, asked his father, his father said, you know, I I don't speak it, obviously, my, your grandfather didn't speak it. Um, We have these documents, these family documents that have words in them, um, but maybe you should go over to Peru, Indiana, where there's a large community of Yamia people and find out if anyone speaks it over there and so on, check the Oklahoma community. And, uh, you know, it was found that no one spoke the language, but Daryl was still really empowered to want to 
teach something of the language to his children mm-hmm. and to begin to use it in his own daily life. And so he used these, these by today's, by our standards today, fragmentary word document, word lists to begin to learn how to say particular phrases that are useful to daily life and teach it to his family. Once the Miami people living elsewhere learned of that, they basically, various people were really inspired by that and wanted him to come share what he was doing with them. So he didn't start this with the goal of being a community teacher. He just wanted to use it for himself and his family. But you know, when the Miami tribe of Oklahoma uh, put in for a grant in 97 to really begin trying to train language teachers, that's when we kind of move from an individual effort centered on Daryl's family to something that could be broader communally. Um, and there was a grand dream, right? I remember it of like, mm-hmm. we'll all become fully fluent in, you know, a couple of years and then we'll be teaching other people in our community and it'll happen so fast. And um, there was a lot of disappointment there along the way. But at the same time, it was really empowering to learn what we could, to speak mm-hmm. what we could with each other. And it really strengthened um, our relationships with each other. But to make sort of the next steps required more than just this this community effort, than just the tribal nation helping through grants and other financial means to support Daryl and his work, because our language had been dormant for so long and because we were revitalizing from documentation, we didn't even have audio recordings of speakers. Sure. You couldn't answer some of the questions that we were asking. How to say this? How would you articulate this idea? How do you create new words for things like cars, automobiles, and computers? Um, And to do that, you really needed um, the tools of linguistics. And so by pure luck um, across, across the continent, but uh, I think born in the same year as Daryl was uh, David Costa. He wasn't yet Dr. David Costa, mm-hmm. um, who was considering a PhD in linguistics. And I'm sure as you remember, a lot of times when you're going to pursue a PhD, you're like, I really want to do this, but I don't really know what I should study. And you sort of, you have this dialogue with your advisor and his advisor, um, you know, I, this is semi-mythologized, but I always imagine him like reaching behind him on a shelf and grabbing like an old dusty binder and thumping it on the table. And he said, here's this language, Miami, Illinois, and we don't even know, this is in Berkeley, we don't even know if they're speakers of this language this day. Um, we don't know even what materials there are for this language. This would be a great topic for a dissertation. And so just by pure luck, David gets given, offered our language, Miami, Illinois is what the linguists call it, as his dissertation topic. And then he re- does the same process Daryl does. He goes to try and find all the documents. He goes to Oklahoma. He goes to Indiana and basically ascertains there are no living speakers of the language. But what he does find, what, what his advisor didn't know, is that the corpus of data on the language was immense. It was enough to do a sizable dissertation on. It's actually, it's so much data now that it's actually uh, another lifetime's worth of work. Um, and it dates all the way back to the 1600s when French Jesuits first came to the Illinois country and stretches all the way to the modern linguistic era, all the way actually to those last speakers in the 1960s. Wow. Um, so it's, it's an immense amount of data, but to, to analyze that data, to process it, because it spans different, different uh, translating languages, French, Latin, English, and then... It has different orthographic systems. Um, it requires so much intense knowledge of the field to begin to process these things, these sources, that there, there needed to be more academic tools brought mm-hmm. to help us. And that need uh, results in what today we call the Miami Center at Miami University. The Miami Tribe of Oklahoma realizing that at that time in Oklahoma, they didn't have the resources, the tools necessary to advance this work, mm-hmm. to do the, the deep processing of the linguistic materials, and then the creation of the educational programs and materials that utilize that data to then teach to the community. They needed help with that. And the Miami tribe was lucky enough to have a relationship with Miami University that stretched back to the 1970s. 
and um, was able to arrange to create what was first called the Miamia Project um, in 2001 with Daryl Baldwin as the first and only employee of it at that time um, to start that work of, you know, making a dictionary, um, making that map that we already described of our homelands and beginning to take steps forward to produce the educational programming by which people can learn to use our language and revitalize aspects of our life ways that we want to revitalize today as a community. You know, that in a nutshell, that's the quick arc from sort of silence to reawakened again. And um, a few of the people uh, key to that, those initial steps. Well, you talked about as part of this this process of throwing off the silence and of awakening the language that there that you actually have to teach the language, um, and that uh, especially for folks of your generation who were aware that it existed but didn't speak it, but then had to come into it, uh, as opposed to your kids' generation who are enmeshed in it from birth. And you know, spoiler alert, or not spoiler alert, but just you know, inside baseball for our listeners out there. I mean, I remember when your first son was born, and he was a little guy. And uh, I should say your wife is a Spanish teacher and your, your little son was moving between three languages with such fluidity that I was embarrassed for myself that I can barely speak English. Can you talk about the process of, of teaching language and what kind of tools it, that the center has developed to impart that knowledge and to help people re-embrace their cultural heritage? Yeah, well, don't, don't uh, denigrate your ability to speak English too much. <laughs> um, but uh, Newe, thank you for the compliment about uh, Kai's early linguistic abilities. Um, still brings a smile to my face thinking of the first time I heard him say Dusa, which is how he said Nusa as a little baby. Um, <laughs> and it's just um, a really powerful moment as a parent um, that I certainly didn't have in mind as a late teens, early 20-somethings mm-hmm. when I started learning language. He wasn't, he wasn't in my mind, but um, certainly um, brought a tear to my eye the first time that happened because of the the power of that, right? That it, he yeah. knows no different. He's never called me dad. So, uh, but to do that, you're right. It requires a lot of different, different tools in the community. And um, the processing of the language work is like a background thing. It's very important. Mm-hmm. It's necessary, but that processing doesn't directly benefit a family like mine, let's say, who's starting with, with very little language in the home who wants to add more. And so one of the first steps was to create a dictionary, right? That's one of the first things that people look for when they want to learn a language. Um, It's actually not very useful to learn a language using a dictionary, but people always think it's necessary. Yeah. Um, And so Daryl and David created uh, a dictionary, a print dictionary. Um, that, if I remember correctly, was published in 2004, 2005. Uh, it's still a great source. I reference it from time to time. But in hindsight, I think Daryl really says the dictionary is really more about prestige, to be able to say mm. our language is important enough to have a dictionary and our yeah. language is robust enough to need a dictionary because there are myths out there in the community that like our language only had 300 words, which some idiot um, community community um, or county historian said, which is all they needed for their savage lives or what have you. Yeah. Um, so it was important to, to refute things like that. But the dictionary wasn't a, a super helpful learning tool because you can't hear the language there. The dictionary reflects what the sources say. It doesn't reflect daily use of the language. Um, so we really began to center language learning around um, was life in the home, because that's the space that Miami people control. Um, we can't control because of our diaspora today. We don't have a reservation. So we don't have a central space of significant size where a large majority of our population lives there today, where we can then have a language speaking community yet. 
that's something that could return. And so the first space, the learning space is really the home and you have the greatest control over the lives of your children. And language learning is really about, in some ways, about control. You have to create the environment where using that language is necessary because children will always seek the path of least resistance, as those of us who are parents know really well. And um, that includes language. Um, they will go the simplest route unless there are sort of requirements in place that they, they do something different. And so we needed to then create materials that people could use in the home and a mechanism to then learn in the home. And a lot of that centered around, you know, creating the phrases, creating phrase books that people could then use to basically, one example would be like the process of getting ready for school and everything that you say and communicate as you're getting a child ready for school, whether that's homeschooling or school outside the home. And then to create a digital dictionary, uh, what people call a talking dictionary that's online that has all those phrases with sound files embedded. So as I want to learn something, you know, get your shoes on, I can then look that up on the dictionary, find the sound file and listen to it over and over again. Pesacando, pesacando, pesacando. And then I can practice and I can say it with confidence to my children mm-hmm. or they can learn to say it to me if necessary. <laughs> so that, you know, that was a, that's a major enterprise building an online uh, web-based dictionary. Sure. Um, and, it, and it involved a lot of collaboration again on campus with, with folks. Obviously we need to bring our linguistic team to the table and then we've had a great uh, collaborative history with computer science at my university, building these tools, building, building app versions of the dictionary that works on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's been really critical. We've also found that learners, um, when they want to say something in the moment, if they can't get at it right away, they're just going to go to English because you're living your life. You got to move forward. Yeah. And you've made space for Miami, but that doesn't mean you can make a half an hour's worth of space when you want to say, get your shoes on. You need it quick. Um, and so the phone app has really been the most useful application for, oh, I can't remember how to say that. And you can look it up on your phone mm-hmm. really quickly and then give that term to your kids. So, you know, then right right now we're in the process of building like online learning modules for the language. Um, that's really sort of the next step for us going forward. But what I don't want to forget or leave out is that language is just the thing we use, the tool that we use to communicate about our lives. And as we revitalize language, what we find is that it's connected to all these different aspects of our life ways. Mm -hmm. Some of those life ways continued in our community, and they've then been strengthened by re-injecting language into them. Some of them also went dormant, and we've reawakened them um, as our knowledge of them and our need for them has increased. We've reawakened them and also infused them with language. And some of them remain dormant um, and maybe will never be revitalized and both our awareness of them is growing and so that's the that's the cultural side mm-hmm. right the language and culture are intertwined um, our language is the the uh, expression of our culture it's what we've used to articulate our culture for generations it's the most efficient tool for us to articulate our culture we know through our community's experience that some aspects of our culture can and were could and and were translated into english and so it's not that that our culture requires our language to to exist but we say our our language and culture need each other and our culture best thrives when it's joined together with our language Um, our language best articulates who we are as a people and our connections to each other english can do some of that work but it can never do all of that work really well the example i always use and it's uh, linguists don't necessarily like it but uh, it's a good intermediary step for our students is that it's like a joke. If you have to explain a joke, it loses its humor. And for in our community, many of these things can be communicated really fluidly in our language. They can be explained in English, but they lose something mm-hmm. once you explain them in English. They just it's not the same, the same impact, the same meaning. It's a, a bridge understanding mm-hmm. as 
folks are taking their first steps towards learning our language and employing it in their lives. I love that analogy because yeah, you're absolutely right. There are certain things that, that have cultural connotations in languages that just do not translate effectively. And so to really understand the meaning of what somebody is saying, you have to hear it in that original language and have to have that cultural awareness to interpret or to understand what, what your conversant is saying to you. Yeah. And so George, tell me about your role there at the Miami Center. Um, you've been a part of the Project Now Center for a very long time. And what kind of work are you doing right now? What is your role in this enterprise? Yeah, well, let me, maybe I should step back first and just describe the Miami Center a little more, more broadly. So just to clarify, the center is an initiative of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma with uh, sort of two main tasks. And one is to continue the research and development in our uh, language research work and culture, cultural research work to then uh, develop the educational materials we need to advance education as a, as a Miami community broadly. And the second then is to share what we're learning about that process on campus at Miami University. So we recognize in a very reciprocal way an obligation we have to um, the institution within which the Miami Center sits to share what we're learning about language and cultural realization with undergraduates, no matter their background at Miami, and where possible, like with computer science students, involve them in that work. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the twin goals, generally, of the Miami Center. As I said, we've been around since 2001, uh, first as a Miami project that was set up to be sort of a three-year renewal. But in 2013, we transitioned to being a center, which gives us a more permanent status on campus. Mm-hmm. And um, we originally had a staff, as I said, of just one, Dara Baldwin. And now we've got so many staff, it's, it's difficult to count us all right now, but I believe uh, 13 full and part-time staff. Wow. So I myself, after I went to graduate school at Miami University and then left for a while, I came back to the, at that time, the Miami Project in 2008 as the assistant director, Mm -hmm. and uh, I currently head up the Office of Education. So a lot of my work initially was to help with research into various historical projects, um, but really in the last five years, my work has transitioned pretty far afield from historical work, and really my work is educational. So um, I'm working with a great team of people right now, actually, to deliver um, our summer youth programming through, you know, through online learning tools mm-hmm. um, to help families learn at home. And you know, that's just one slice of many different educational projects and work that we do in the community. Um, that's um, oddly enough reflective of our of Little Turtles Village life. It's very seasonal. So in the summertime, we're usually in Oklahoma and Indiana with the community working with them. And then you know, in the spring and fall, we're on campus. I'm basically doing the research and development work, mm-hmm. as well as working with our uh, 30-plus Miami Tribe students who are on campus usually every every academic year. And then, and then in the wintertime, we're, we're back in Oklahoma again for traditional storytelling and mm-hmm. um, dances, and et cetera. So it takes us, our work takes us all over the place geographically uh, between all of our various Miami communities, but heavily centers us here at Miami University um, on a sort of day-to-day basis during the academic year. What, what is the relationship between the university and the Miami tribe of Oklahoma? I mean, you, you mentioned that it goes back well into the 70s. For folks who are alums of the university, if you were a certain age, you would have grown up with a mascot that is not exactly uh, the nicest mascot and is actually a, a racist pejorative term for Native American people. Uh, and I'm not going to say it, but now they are the Miami Red Hawks. And so we're under a different era in that regard, at least athletically. But there has been this long association between the tribe and the university that has allowed this kind of 
educational programming to flourish? Yeah, absolutely. So we we oftentimes describe in English our relationship with the university with uh, the phrase partners in learning, mm-hmm. or in Miami, Nippon Dinge. And you know, that really represents a, a, a powerful transition that occurred in the relationship in the 1990s. So as you mentioned, there was this issue of a, a race-based mascot at Miami University and early interactions between the tribe and university oftentimes, sadly, centered on that issue of how mm-hmm. to authenticate and maintain that race-based mascot. Um, but in the 1990s, under the leadership of uh, Chief Floyd Leonard, and Dr. Murtis Powell at the university, there was a really strong transition made sort of out of the realm of athletics uh, into the realm of education. Mm. And um, although the mascot hadn't changed at that point, the emphasis was really on how are we gonna educate both Miami, Miami tribe citizens through this relationship and how are we gonna educate uh, Miami University students about life for indigenous people in, in Northeast Oklahoma today, specifically the Miami tribe. And you know, from that, some of the seeds that were planted there really grew a really strong, uh, rooted system that uh, continues to to increase and flourish to this day. And um, you know, moved into the classroom, right? So then, mm-hmm. um, it's more about sharing about who we are today as a people and how we're affected by our past. And then, again, under the leadership of those two individuals, the first uh, Miami Tribe students were brought to campus. And those students' arrival on campus, uh, I think it was 1991, really was a tipping point uh, because then you had tribal citizens on campus, just like you know the, the broader Miami University community, and eventually bringing their educational um, attainments back home to their community to help our community grow and move back towards a place where we feel like we're thriving and flourishing again. I think, you know, that central connection of education really links the two together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the creation of the Miamia project was kind of like the linchpin in sort of sealing this process up. But even there, we didn't start signing official documents like MOUs and MOAs until some, some steps down the path. So 2006, I think. So things were allowed to grow kind of organically, but it's a really reciprocal and mutually beneficial relationship. Both entities put financial resources into it. Both entities put um, human resources into it. A, a pretty unique relationship in the in the lower 48, to the best of our knowledge, in the United States today, where a single tribe has a relationship like this with a single university entity that's structured like this, mm-hmm. that's reciprocal. And so obviously beneficial to both entities, right? No one's getting more than someone else out of this. It's really mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. What are some things that are coming down the pike? One major exciting thing to come uh, be coming out this fall is we'll be doing a relaunch of our online dictionary, um, which will be a more sustainable format for our programmers going forward and be uh, more responsive to our learners. And then um, we'll also be releasing a new version of the uh, Indigenous Languages Digital Archive, which is the online digital archive tool uh, that will eventually have all of those various um, linguistic documents we talked about earlier on. Um, So they currently have uh, two of the French Jesuit manuscripts, and the third is being loaded this summer. Um, and then there's uh, three other documents that come out of the sort of, sort of the American period from the 18, uh, 1790s all the way through to the 1930s. Um, eventually, all of the documents will be on there, which is a really exciting um, moment for the background research because our, our researchers will be able to then, when we want to research the meaning of a particular word or we want to create a new word, um, it will allow them to search across all these documents 
um, in one place, wow. um, which is really, really powerful. That work was funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. So it's really, really exciting. And the goal with the Indigenous Languages Digital Archive is, you know, we built it first for ourselves, but where possible, we're going to be able to share it with other tribal communities mm-hmm. because there are many other tribal nations, Indigenous nations who are in the same place we are. They have no or very few speakers and they have a mountain of data that linguists collected and this tool is really built for those who are revitalizing from documentation a lot of the other tools out there for linguists are focused on audio recordings and analyzing audio um, we are working with a living speaker and they're not set up to handle documents the way our ours is um, so that's that's really exciting coming out sort of in the, in the background research that informs education. So one of the other things I'm really excited about is that Daryl Baldwin's son, Jared Baldwin, just graduated with a master's degree in second language studies. And he'll be coming back to the community this summer. He actually just started on July 1 to really take up the lead role in lang- organizing language teaching. Mm-hmm. And inside our community, we acknowledge we haven't had a professionally trained language teacher. So we've all been learning how to do it here and there, relying mainly on sort of linguistics to inform how we're teaching. And now, you know, we're going to have someone with all the tools in their box to really help organize and um, carry out language teaching. So that's going to be really exciting. And who knows what kind of steps we're going to make forward once once he hits the ground. And then probably the the last thing, because I could go on and on and on, is that my my colleague and I, uh, Tina Fox, who works with me, we're going to begin uh, the first steps of creating learning modules centered on specific topics mm-hmm. to really get into more serious long distance learning. So a lot of our work has really been face to face up until now. Um, and obviously this, the COVID-19 crisis has changed a lot of that radically for us in a short period of time. But the goal is to create a much more developed learning at home system. And the first cultural node we're going to build that uh, system around is food. Um, so mm-hmm. you know what we've learned is you don't teach language directly. You find a topic people want to learn about and you infuse language into that topic. And so we're going to be building, um, you know, we don't know what it's going to look like yet, but that's mm-hmm. the next steps for us is to build this learning infrastructure around a program for food that then has language infused into it. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what directions that takes in the future. Well, that sounds terrific. And, and if folks out there who are teachers, uh, students, researchers, indigenous people who want to take advantage of the, of the work that you have done or I mean, perhaps participate in it, what are the best ways to reach the Miyamiya Center and to take advantage of these resources and, and possibly collaborate? You can find us at miamioh.edu backslash miamiya-center. It's our, it's our homepage. You can find just about everything about us there. Of course, you can find my contact to the staff page there and feel free to, to email me. We'll link all this to the show notes as well. Yeah. Well, George, thank you very much. As always, I learned a ton from talking to you. And so I'm delighted to to actually have the first time in a long time to actually sit down and and chat with you. So this has been terrific. And I'm sure our audience is going to get a lot out of it. And stay safe. Thanks again. And we hope to see you soon. Yeah, thank you, Jim. If I have one lament is that I didn't make you laugh enough because your laugh is priceless uh, on the podcast. So you got one there at the end. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer. Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. 
Our music is Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. 